0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer
1: flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
2: Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast.
0: Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Hi, I'm Mats Vilander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast.
1: Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. And we come to you the morning after Novak Djokovic took his remarkable year to nine titles won, 25 Masters 1000 events overall, 73 matches won and only five defeats this year. He beat Andy Murray comfortably in the semifinals. Joe Wilfred Songer in the final. He is utterly dominating the other members of the supposed big four. And I'm asking today to all those who said this is getting boring. Did you say the same about Roger Federer at Wimbledon all those years? Did you say that about Rafael Nadal when he was winning nine French Opens in 11 years? And is he actually getting better, Novak Djokovic? Isn't it time we started giving this guy the respect he deserves, maybe even a bit of affection? Federer lost in the first round to Albert Ramos-Vinolas. What a shock that was, one of the upsets of the year. Nick Kyrgios got himself into further hot water, edging towards that $5,000 mark in fines which would activate a 20 eight-day suspension and meanwhile on the women's circuit Venus Williams will now have to rely on other results to get to Singapore as she lost out in the Hong Kong semi-finals to eventual champion Yelena Jankovic my name is David Law this is our first tennis podcast since we celebrated our one millionth download one million honestly you think people have, have better things to do with their lives than listen to this wouldn't you but Catherine Whittaker and I would just like to say a big thank you to all of you wouldn't we Catherine
2: Yes, all the, those million members of the Whittaker family, thanks. thanks to each and every one of you.
1: Yes, all downloaded at once each to reach the grand total. And uh, Catherine, you and I are podcast devotees generally, aren't we? We like listening to podcasts. Where do you listen to your podcasts?
2: Uh, anywhere and everywhere. I have such a bizarre, uh, n- n- non, uh, non-schedule-based life. That uh, I mean, it, on one week it'll, I'll be listening on the plane or on the train or occasionally in automobiles. Uh, sometimes I'll be listening at an event at my desk while pottering around, waiting for a tennis player, which I do sp- seem to spend a lot of my life doing. Uh, or sometimes I'll just be um, mowing around at home, listening on the sofa or in bed or something. So.
1: The reason I ask is because we can't listen to our own show. Well, we can, but we'd look a bit ridiculous, wouldn't we? So we asked you, given we're celebrating our millionth download, where do you listen to the tennis podcast? Andy Mallon says, while walking to work in the morning. Nena Jovanovic says, shaving in the morning is better, with a little tennis talk in the background. Susie says, whilst walking the dog. Political rat says hanging out the washing and doing other domestic chores is made much better while listening to the tennis podcast and john mckay says chilling on the beach kelvin gray says i usually listen to the pod while i'm in the bath so there we are it's a it's a wide variety
2: TMI Kelvin I think uh, our dear friend of the show Dave responded with a uh, a similarly oversharing response about where, where he listened I think the winner has to be Susie I can't imagine anything more joyful than both walking a dog and listening to the tennis podcast simultaneously Susie you've won at life what about
1: your poor dog just blanking your dog while you're listening to some rubbish show? Anyway, Catherine, uh, my co-host, sitting alongside me here in the Putney Exchange Shopping Centre, is making a late charge for Singapore herself. Played twice in two days, didn't you, Catherine? How did it go? <laughs> uh,
2: varying success. Um, latterly, the uh, appallingly, utterly appallingly, for which I, being the bad workman that I am, entirely blame uh, my tools and the uh, and the conditions. October is a is a dastardly month for outdoor tennis in this country. It was windy. It was a bit damp. The court with all sorts of bad bounces. You know, I'm like Federer. I like perfect conditions to you know nothing to interfere with my immense level of skill.
1: You don't know this, listener, but I'm really struggling to keep a straight face just at the moment uh, with the comparisons to Federer and the excuses that have uh, uh, run the full gamut just at the moment. Now, Catherine, Novak Djokovic, he wasn't complaining, was he? He wasn't worried about the conditions where he was in Shanghai. The man cannot be beaten in China. It is as simple as that. And, I mean, it is getting ridiculous now how good this guy is getting. He is getting better
2: yeah he is and, and he's even said that now he said this is so far and away the best year I've ever had, the best tennis i've ever been playing and and we'll look at the numbers he's double he's got double the points for the year that the number two place Andy Murray has got it is a level of dominance that i i in terms of the bare facts, it's a level of dominance beyond what Federer achieved at any one moment, because he always had Nadal as, as as a rival. He always had Nadal as as a as a real challenger. Who who is Djokovic's challenger, really?
1: The field is the challenger, but the field is nowhere near just at the moment. I mean, that is the big question mark, though, isn't it? You mentioned he always had Nadal, Federer. Yes, he did. In the, the later years of his dominance, but it's certainly in 04 and 05, he didn't. He had Roddick and Hewitt as his primary challengers. Arguably, what Djokovic is doing is even more impressive, isn't it? The fact that he still has Federer, okay, a bit of an older Federer. He has Nadal, he has Murray. These are players that in other eras are the, some of the greatest players of all time. Okay, maybe not Murray in that group, but the other two certainly are.
2: Possibly. uh, Yeah, I think I think an argument could be made for that. The other thing that I think is particularly impressive is, I mean, a lot of players, maybe you you don't know how good they could have been, how far away better than the rest of the field they could have been, because I guess you do just enough to be world number one. You know why? And then you sort of plateau, I suppose. But he's he's. So far beyond how good he needs to be and how dominant he needs to be to be the outright world number one, and he just keeps on getting better. Talk about not letting the grass grow. I mean, everybody else is so far and away, uh, so far away from him. I know we're going to have a chat about who from the next generation might challenge, and and it's not to say that's an impossibility, but it feels like such a distant possibility at the moment for somebody to actually come along and properly challenge him it really feels unlikely in the immediate future
1: yeah absolutely it, the, the big question that comes out of this from me though as well as just mouth gaping at what he's been doing over the past few days I mean particularly when he played Andy Murray that was not the best Andy Murray by any means in the semi-finals up against him but even when Andy Murray did string a couple of rallies together where he started to look like himself. Novak Djokovic had all the answers. I mean, it was really shocking to see what he was able to do. Now, what on earth is going on in the Putney Shopping Exchange Centre? I think they're just opening up at the moment, which is why you're hearing all the hubbub in the background. People running in to go and do their shopping, perhaps. But anyway, we can still crack on here on the Tennis Podcast. And what did strike me is just to assess the reaction on social media to the victory he had against Joe Wilfrid Songa and the, the levels of dominance that he is now enjoying. And, well, there was, there was a, a degree of apathy out there. There was a degree of people saying, oh, this is getting boring now. You know, I, I don't want to watch this anymore. Were people saying that when Roger Federer was doing it? That was the question I asked immediately afterwards. Are we giving this guy a fair shake, Novak Chokovic?
2: I think to an extent, yes, we were. I, I didn't, I didn't um, have much time for Federer. I mean, I appreciated him objectively, but I, I never supported Federer during, Why? His, during his dominance. Because it was, it was boring. I don't think it was boring to quite the same degree because I do think there's an issue... Not an issue, I mean, it, in terms of aesthetic appreciation, they play a very different brand of tennis. And I think objectively... Federer's brand of tennis is a, a level of magnificence that that compensated, I suppose, for how dominant he was and, and how uncompetitive points during his, his his reign were. But, I mean, I always supported Rafa in the days of, of uh, Federer's dominance. You know, that Wimbledon final, I wanted Rafa to win it because it's just... More exciting for tennis, more competition. What's sport is all about competition, isn't it? I mean, I don't like watching anybody win six love six one.
1: So why are you supporting Roger Federer these days then?
2: Because he's not dominant. Because he's, and also there's that feeling if you don't know how much longer he's going to be around for, you have to appreciate him. The other factor with Novak Djokovic is. I have an issue with how much this question that we're asking, so we're part of the problem, is asked. I think that's part of the problem. All this, the slight chip on the shoulder, the why isn't he loved? Why isn't he appreciated? I think I think he is. Just uh, okay, perhaps let him get on with it. Just let him get on with it, for goodness' sake. And I think, I actually think it's interesting in China, and in and in a lot of Asia, he is a god in the way that. Federer and Nadal are in other parts of the world in, and in the way that I think he thinks he perhaps should be in other parts of the world in in China, he is thought of in that way if, if anything he 's more popular than Federer and Nadal and I think that has something to do with why it suits him i think that I think that 's important to him and, and I think it 's a cyclical thing we 've talked about it before the as much as he won 't openly say it he does care he does want to be loved and appreciated and that's fine who wouldn't but just say it Novak just say I, re- I would love to be adored why should I he have to say it? anything because we're saying it he, he does deserve to be appreciated but well because he's he's outright asked about it on, often isn't he in press conferences you know does it does it bother you that you don't receive the same level of adoration he says no no it's all fine to me Whereas on the court sometimes he he gives away just enough for you to realise that it's that it's not all fine with him. And and I those are the moments in which I like him the most.
1: She likes flawed people, Catherine Whittaker.
2: Yes, I do. Well how much did I talk during the Federal Reign, how much did I talk about the Superman analogy of Kryptonite? I did. I, I used that analogy to death. You know, there has to be a kryptonite for you to appreciate a superhero. hero. There has to be a flaw. And I said it about Federer at the time, there's no blooming flaw. And uh, I'm sure one will emerge at some stage with Novak Djokovic, but it's not self-evident at the moment, is it?
1: That's why Catherine Whitaker doesn't like me. Flawless law. That's the big problem. Now, what do you lot think? I remember Charlie Eccleshire of The Telegraph writing a piece which uh, was headlined, Novak Djokovic wins Wimbledon again. But where is the love? And I remember... Thinking, that's a very interesting point, isn't it? So we asked you on Twitter what your thoughts were about Novak Djokovic's domination. Hugh Beasley says it's just as exciting. Dom Ledensborough says anyone who thinks it's boring doesn't understand tennis. Hashtag Novak Djokovic. Nicole Eclectic says it's only boring when it isn't your favourite player. Novak Fan says, uh, I think we know where this one's coming from, I don't find it in the least bit boring. I'm loving it. And that person puts 10 smiley faces. However, Song says Federer made tons of people start watching tennis. Djokovic is driving people away. Don't think that's true, is it? Al Stefano says no, because Federer and Nadal had likable entertaining personalities. Wait a minute, Al Stefano. What about Novak Djokovic's impersonations? I think those were brilliant. Rookery Mike says, perhaps it's because it's yet another period of unopposed dominance. That's what Catherine was getting at. Donna says he's a lovely man, funny, great personality, but mainly off the court. He comes across a little robotic on it. Maybe that's why. Uh, Maria says he's taking advantage of an old Federer and a rubbish Rafa. That's a bit harsh. Rafa's starting to come good again, I think.
2: Uh, oh, the Raffa chat again. I, I think that is, that is harsh. I think his competition, perhaps maybe not in this precise moment now, but generally speaking, his competition is, 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 is as high and as strong as, as anyone's has been really at, at the top of the game. So I, I personally think that's a bit harsh. I mean, you could say that this year Murray's played his best tennis ever and look how, how clear the lead is between Djokovic
1: and Murray. I I think there are actually two separate issues. We've got Siobhan here. Siobhan's here who says, any dominance is boring. Good for them, but dull for the fans. Song says dominance is boring by nature. So imagine when a boring player is dominant. That's a bit harsh. It is unbearable. But I think we've got two separate issues here. One is, yes, unopposed domination can get a little bit samey. It doesn't matter who it is. I think The one thing with Roger Federer was it was a little bit like going to the theatre when he was actually absolutely on the top of his game. You could enjoy just the magnificence of it regardless of whether there was any tension involved. But in terms of appreciation of Novak Djokovic. I think you pointed out a very valid point when you said that in China things are different. He keeps going back, he keeps being successful, he's building that legacy one little step at a time and as he goes around the world over the next five years, I suspect that is going to happen for him. I do, you're not sure about that are you? I can tell, but I remember Ivan Lendl. I hated Ivan Lendl when he was world number one. In the latter couple of years of his career I started to support him. I remember him playing Boris Becker at Wimbledon, and I was shouting his name at the TV when, you know, 10 years previously, it had been the, been the other way around.
2: I'm, I'm quite sure you're right to a certain extent. I'm quite sure there will be more affection for Novak Djokovic in the latter stages of, of his career, just because the, the same effects that Federer is experiencing now, I think he will experience. He will
1: have But don't you fantasy. just start appreciating people and their dominance and their brilliance as things go along just by the repetitiveness of
2: it but I I think appreciating it and enjoying it are different things I I mean there were perhaps a couple of people uh, on Twitter that were not fully appreciative of it but I think you can stand in awe of it without enjoying it I mean I honestly don't enjoy watching him thrash the world number two watching the world number one thrash the world number two is not enjoyable and I would apply that to no matter who the names are next to the one and two but I utterly appreciate it i think uh, and, I, and I think confusing those two things are, are quite different. I, I think he will only be appreciated more as time goes on, but that 's not to say he 's not appreciated now, but loved and appreciated are different things and it doesn 't to say that he 's not loved doesn 't mean that people think or that he is a terrible bad person it 's just sometimes there 's a bit of an x factor of you know, there's just a little bit of a disconnect between him and and the public. Some people get him completely, and we see those people on Twitter, they just get him, and, and they love him for it. But I think very generally speaking, there's a slight disconnect. People don't get him. That doesn't mean they don't appreciate him.
1: Now, what do the rest of the world have to do to come back to him? Because... You, it tends to go in cycles, doesn't it? Somebody establishes some dominance with a certain style of play and others develop, frankly, the kryptonite against it, don't they? That's what tends to happen with, with sport in life. What is it going to take, do you think? I mean, we're not best players, we're not coaches, we're not players, but what do you think? Well, Catherine's looking at me as, as, as if to say, well, hang on a minute, I've played twice in a week.
2: Speak for yourself, David. I can't believe you're doing down my credentials as a, uh, as a tennis coach. Just
1: because you beat me 11-9 in one Champions tie-break doesn't make you Novak Djokovic's okay. next contender.
2: But I did achieve uh, a feat that perhaps nobody else in tennis has ever achieved in that tie-break, which was that I beat you twice in one, in one contest. Because you cheated on the first match point, didn't you, David?
1: Didn't have to say that. <laughs> win, win if you can, lose if you must, but always cheat. That's what I say. <laughs> Now, Catherine, come on. Uh, Don't do that, kids. Uh, So what do we think? I mean, I put it out on social media. Magnus says it's down to people taking more chances and being more aggressive on that second serve, which has obviously got a lot better under Boris Becker, hasn't it? Changing the pace, using slice, attacking Novak's second serve is the key, he reckons. But it doesn't seem that easy to attack that thing.
2: Yeah, I think that's the proverbial clutching at straws. I mean, not to say that that's wrong, but I think that's the tiniest chink. In the, and it's not even a chink, it's just not quite as robust a, an area of armour as the rest of his armour. I think that probably is the answer. I, I, I think it's going to take somebody that has pays no heed to locker room aura, somebody that walks on the court and doesn't already feel... I'm going to have to play my best tennis on every single point to even stand a chance here. Somebody... I mean, fearlessness is... That's a bit of a simplistic way of putting it, but I suppose that probably is how you'd express it. Somebody that's not three love down when they step on the court.
1: As Joe Wilfred Songer was yesterday and a double break, and that is the problem when he steps up. I remember when Joe Wilfred Songer first came on the scene and thrashed Rafael Nadal, who was at the peak of his powers in early 2008 at the Australian Open. It was one of the most exciting couple of hours of tennis that I've had pleasure to commentate on. A couple of others that I think of, Marit Safin winning the US Open in 2000, Juan Martin Del Potro uh, winning the US Open. That sort of otherworldly power where you just think, oh my word, this guy might just pick up Novak Djokovic any minute or Rafa Nadal and break him in half. Stan Wawrinka did that, didn't he, at the French Open in the final. But Songer doesn't appear to be able to do that against Novak Djokovic in these big occasions.
2: No, he can't. Um, I think that I think probably everybody in tennis is going to spend their off season watching that French Open final on a loop to try and identify what the keys were. And if- it's
1: dead easy. All you have to do is redline it, get the best backhand on the planet, a pretty decent forehand, massive serve.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices.
2: Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription.
1: And hit every line for three hours. <laughs>
2: uh, brilliant! Okay, I've got that sorted. Yeah, my uh, my charge for the uh, for the top of the game is is on. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I mean in in my head, what popped into it was, it w- and as soon as you said the words "otherworldly power," that it all clicked. You know, I was imagining Philippoussis circa nineteen ninety six when he came out uh, at that Australian Open. Somebody that. That, that can just startle him like that. But then you look at the the crop of players coming through, and Kyrgios aside, yeah. who we're going to talk about in another context in a moment, none of them fit that mould. That's not the model of player that's coming through at the moment. Tennis is quite cyclical. It's, this, it's quite the, the crop of players coming through at the moment, not that they're not powerful, but they're crafty and and um, wily and um, very, very skillful, but it, I don't see, Kyrgios aside, much brute power coming through.
1: That's the next generation, but what about the next next generation? People like Chorich, Zverev, Kokonakis, Rublev. What do you think about those guys? Let's just hear what you all think. Hugh Beasley says Zverev is actually best placed. He beat him last year at an exhibition event before Wimbledon. I don't think it quite counts, Hugh. Uh, Bridget Kelly says, Kokonakis, because when he's on his game, he has the consistent serve and ability to stay in the rallies. Ali agrees. Kokonakis looked good against Djokovic or Roland Garros. Got the consistency, the power, the right mental attitude. But there's a couple of shouts here for Andre Rublev. Quite a few people saying him. And actually, when I saw him play earlier this year, I think it was in Barcelona when he beat Fernando Vadasco, there was a bit of Djokovic about him. The way he had the movement and the sort of ping-pong type tennis, there was no obvious weakness.
2: Yeah, and his demeanour has a bit of the Marit Safin about him as well. I, maybe that's just a, a Russian thing, but uh, I, I think he has sufficient disrespect for, uh, in, in the best possible way, sufficient disrespect for, for the establishment at the top of the game. I, I think he probably fits into that category of somebody that's not going to be 3 love down walking onto the court. The, the issue at the moment is that he still looks like a boy, doesn't he? He's the frame of a boy. Um, and uh, I think he probably needs to, to grow into that a little bit before he's a genuine challenger. But he certainly has the skills. And he also, for anybody that hasn't seen the video of him and his friends uh, recording a uh, version of One Direction's Steal My Girl... You are you are resoundingly missing out. I can guarantee. In a
1: good way or a bad way.
2: Um, really depends what your feelings are on sort of spotty 18-year-olds impersonating One Direction. Uh, with, you have to impersonate with, with, them. Com- you just
1: be them, don't you? My,
2: my favourite thing about it is the complete straight faces. I mean, I mean, just check it out on YouTube. That's that's my tip. Rublev, steal my girl is probably. The, key, the search key to to, to finding that. It's well, it's well worth a minute of your time.
1: We'll just interrupt this edition of the Tennis Podcast while I go and Google that because I love One Direction. Now, uh, that having been done, uh, Paul Jones says I'm interested to see when father time starts to turn on Djokovic. At this point that appears to be his biggest foe.
2: I mean... In theory, you'd expect so, but what in practice is indicating that that there's any indication of him waning? He's getting better.
1: Particularly because of that wiry frame of his, that Federer-like frame, frankly. It's not like Nadal, who's carrying a lot of muscle and putting a lot of pressure on the joints. This guy, this guy could go on for years yet.
2: Exactly, and I think his... Um Something that's a bit underrated is his flexibility, uh, I think, reduces the stress on his joints somehow. He does feel like he can just bend with with whatever way he needs to rather than it, it somehow feels like there's less impact on his joints because of that flexibility. Whereas when you see somebody like Rafa, and I'd, I'd say to a certain extent Andy Murray as well, step onto the court, you almost feel like there's that infinite tank, like as if you're playing a computer game and you have your, your lives or your power in the top corner and every time they step onto the court you see it go down by 1% there's a finite quantity of, of power of, of lives whereas with Djokovic that's a, a rechargeable tank somehow
1: Indeed. Rechargeable tank. Andy Murray on that subject. My word, he was getting a bit annoyed when he was playing against Novak Djokovic. I suppose when you're losing 6-1, 6-3, you're not going to be in the best of moods, are you? But goodness me, he has a go at himself and those supporting it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? It did look like the... Uh, who was it we had in the podcast recently? It was Simon Briggs that referenced a pre Lendl. Pre-Lendl Murray, uh, as if Lendl is sort of the benchmark of Murray's improved on-court behaviour. I think that was after the match against Anderson at the US Open, wasn't it? That there were signs of the pre-Lendl Murray, and it was it was the same again. But as you say, I mean, I defy anybody not. To, I mean, he must have just been thinking, "I'm the blooming world number two, and I'm getting utterly." Thrash this. Actually, time. there
1: was a one moment as well, Catherine, where Murray played a fantastic point. He was throwing himself around, hitting punched volleys. He was going back and doing his retrieving he was d- and turning around and doing wonderful passing shots, and Djokovic still had the answer to every single one of those shots. I tell you, I would have wrapped the racket around my own head if that had happened.
2: Yeah, I mean there's no it, it's you have to win a rally four times against him, don't you? You hit a winner and and what I would be doing is just standing back and admiring that win winner and then Djokovic would be hitting it back for a winner himself. I just can't imagine the frustration that elicits in somebody. And I think when we're talking about, you know, opponents walk on the court and feel like they're love 3 down, that's what they're thinking. They're thinking I I can probably play a brilliant rally and it's just not going to be it's not going to be enough I, I think it's that the pressure on them all the time they're thinking I have to do just I have to do a bit more a bit more than what I'm capable of in mean, every single rally and that that forces errors unless you're Stan Rinker in Paris in May or June was it beginning of June uh that yeah redlining it redlining it is what you need to do everyone
1: Everybody's going to go and start watching Stan Favrinka practicing, trying to work out how on earth he did it. He's one of the five that actually beat Novak Djokovic and he did it when it mattered absolutely most. We mentioned Nick Kyrgios. He has uh, got himself into a little bit of trouble once more. He is on probation, don't forget. If he accumulates $5,000 in fines over the six months from his misdemeanor in the summer, he stands to be suspended for 28 days. He's getting a couple of fines. He's edging towards that mark. He's kind of improved, Catherine, in some of his matches. I mean, a lot of the matches I've seen where we've just seen a result and lots of highlight real winners. But then we have had a a couple of uh, flashpoints as well. He's got annoyed with a couple of ball kids and thrashed a ball away in frustration. But is it not that we are also just watching every single thing he does? And therefore, there's no hiding place, and the, the, the lad actually can't do anything without being talked about.
2: Of course, it's that, but he's rather sacrificed his right to a hiding hiding place, hasn't he? I mean, he's he's invited this upon himself with his own behaviour. I don't. I think, of course, there's. A ridiculous level of scrutiny on him in a way that nobody else is is subjected to but i don't think you can argue that that's in any way unfair or unjust because he's been given the opportunity to help himself i was i was really um pleased and impressed by the sanctions that the, the the way the atp chose to impose the sanctions on on kyrgios they you know dangled the the carrot incentive for him to improve his behaviour and become what he should be which is an incredibly positive influence on tennis for now and for the future they're giving him the opportunity to help himself and yes he's improved a bit but come on Nick can't you see how what a fantastic opportunity you've been given how if I were to say let off the hook that would imply that I think he's been let off lightly or unduly lightly which I don't think at all but I mean, all you've got to do... I mean, just put some sticky tape over your mouth before you go on court or something. I mean, and it leads me to think maybe he just can't help himself. Maybe it's just not possible for him.
1: Well, it's very difficult, I think, if you are wired that way to say whatever's on your mind. <laughs> and it doesn't appear to be that that is the, the the case. Also should mention, and we actually had a very brief Twitter exchange. I'm not trying to name-drop here, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, because... I, I just pointed out that this guy has also set up off his own back a little scheme to donate $50 for every ace he hits to the Elena Baltacha Foundation. And this is more than a year and a half after Elena sadly died. And I think that that is a, a really nice gesture and, and a credit to him, to be quite honest. And I sort of I put out on Twitter, I said, see, he's not all bad. And uh, to which he replied... Somewhere in there is there is there a compliment hashtag maybe, and I said yeah there 's a compliment in there, and I, I think it 's nice
2: that 's where he 's not doing himself any favors, though is he is if like, I mean stop searching for the co- you 've just got to get put your head down and take your punishment like a man, Nick yes, do all these that 's wonderful that he 's doing that do all that, but then don 't don 't question whether or not he 's getting sufficiently complimented for it it's like a, oh I
1: don't mind
2: apology on on Facebook which, which was perfectly fine his apology for for all the Stanford Rinker stuff fine perfectly fine apology great box ticked and then he ends it with the ha- hashtag NK rising <laughs> I mean I know it's personality and it, he's I agree with you I think he's basically a good kid and, and he is going to be great for the sport and I can't take my eyes off him when I, when I see him on an order of play I want to watch Do you think I should have a
1: hashtag? DL Rising, what do you DL
2: think? DL Rising, oh my goodness. Uh, okay, that, uh, that look on
1: her face tells me everything I need to know. Uh, we'll finish off with uh, a couple of uh, points about where we stand in the race to Singapore and the ATP World Tour finals at the O2. Singapore, uh, Agnieszka Radvanska has qualified, so well done to her. At the O2, uh, Rafael Nadal and Thomas Burditch have joined Djokovic Federer, Murray Vavrinka in that lineup. And it, I said race to the O2. There is no race, really, is there? Unless David Ferrer or Kei Nishikori fall over, they're going to get there as well, and that'll be your field of eight, unless somebody withdraws.
2: Unless somebody withdraws, that's it. It, it, In fact, it's not been a race really at any stage. That gap between the top eight and uh, everybody else has been so large that it's a shame, really, because that's that's what gives this portion of the season it's, its edge, really, and its significance. But if Andy Murray does pull out, or somebody else could, I suppose, due to injury. But at the at the moment, if if you had to think of anybody that would pull out, it would be Andy Murray. Then suddenly a spot opens. It's, it, given that Andy Murray's already said that's a possibility, it's still worth the best of the rest fighting for it. But I, the, every day that goes by, the more likely I feel it is that Murray will play. And the noises I'm hearing in Mallorca last week, the noises were. From the Swedes, who I think know a thing or two about what's going on in Jonas Bjorkman's mind, for example, the Swedes seemed very confident that Murray would play.
1: A couple of questions from our listeners just before we finish off. Jim B says, Is Bernard Tomic slam-winner material if he screws his head on? He pushed Novak more than anybody this week. It's true, isn't it, actually, that Bernard Tomic." Has a game that Novak Djokovic doesn't like one bit.
2: Of course he could be, but that that casual if he screws his head on a little bit is is the that's like saying could David Law be a uh, Grand Slam winning material if he just what? if he just got a bit better?
1: That's <laughs> not quite the same, Catherine Whitaker. I know it's early, but you're completely <laughs> losing it. Uh, Maria says, do you think uh, Dominic team will challenge for big titles in the next few years? Can I just answer on Bernard Tomic as well to say that I personally don't think he's ever going to win a Grand Slam title because I just think he, I think he's, it doesn't mean everything to him. I think he wants to do well and I think he will have a very good career. But I think the extent to which these people have to push themselves. Look at Andy Murray, how far he pushes himself and he's a better player than, than Bernard Tomic. I, I I think that you need to be more than just good. Dominic team, what do you think?
2: I think he will contend for bigger titles in the year to come. I think he's really, really good. I think he could possibly get top 10. I think that's achievable for him. I think I, uh, he's got a backhand I could watch just all day long on a loop. Um, I don't know if Grand Slams is possibly a bridge too far. I could see him having the odd, you know, real run at Grand Slams, certainly being up there, reaching semifinals, maybe...
1: He could beat a couple of really big names. He could beat a big four player, couldn't he, at a slam at some point with that sort of explosive game he has, that Vavrinka style game.
2: He could. He's. I think this year he's got. um, I think to say he's got his schedule management a bit wrong would be a bit harsh because I think he's done better than he expected. It's been a bit of a breakthrough year for him. He, He won a couple of titles back to back in the summer and then. Uh, arrived in uh, Montreal and Cincinnati in the US Open just feeling exhausted he, um, uh, I remember seeing him before he went on to play his good friend who shares a coach with Ernest Gulbis in uh, the first round in Montreal and uh, he, he was going on to the court saying I'm just too knackered for this uh, and that sort of Uh, bore out through the rest of the U.S. hardcourt season. So I think his schedule next year might look a little bit different and that will be interesting to see. But this year has been about getting wins under his belt, getting his ranking higher and and I'd like to see him in the top 10. I think he'd be a a good addition to the top 10.
1: Yeah, He he is an exciting player to watch, certainly. Marcus finally (laughs) says, is this David Ferrer's final year as a top 10 player? you know what, Marcus? I think David Ferrer has earned the right to not be written off, frankly. And even though I kind of feel as though there has to be a point at which this guy starts going down, he, he's just the, the, the original energizer bunny, isn't he? He just keeps on going. How can you write off a man with that sort of tenacity? He, he's not even felt as though he's had his best year this year. And yet here he is, he's about to get into the World Tour Finals again.
2: Yeah, he's not remotely had his best year. I don't think we've talked about him once on the tennis podcast. I don't think I've heard anybody really talk about him. I don't think he's been mentioned as a contender ahead of any of the slams. And yet he's still quietly going about his business, qualifying for the World Tour Finals. It is extraordinary. And and I, I certainly wouldn't write him off. I don't, you know, I don't think he's... Uh, going to do anything to enormously surprise us in the remainder of his career but I, I'm not going to bet against him continuing to plug away and having results.
1: Indeed. Now there's another Champions Tour event, ATP Champions Tour event on this week in Seoul, South Korea with Andy Roddick, Goran Ivanisevic, Marat Safin and Michael Chang playing. You're not going though are you Catherine Whitaker? What, what, are you doing, what are you doing with yourself? You're off to Singapore for the BNP Paribas WTA Finals.
2: I've got a I've got a prior a, a prior date uh, with uh, with a different Asian destination. So uh, our esteemed colleague Dave Levy is going to go to Seoul, and uh, I'm sure he'll have an absolute whale of a time with Goran and Marat and <laughs> Michael Chang and Andy Roddick. It's a hell of a field, isn't it?
1: It certainly is. We'll uh, give you an update on what happens there in our next edition of the Tennis Podcast. Do also keep an eye on the Royal Albert Hall Champions Tennis Field, the 2nd to the 6th of December. There are tickets available. John McIner will be there. Pat Cash, Henri Leconte, Tim Henman, James Blake, Fernando Gonzalez, you name it. They're all there. And Mansell Brahmi. You know, I've been watching Mansell Brahmi for about 17 years. I still laugh.
2: I did too. He was in Mallorca and uh, I found myself wandering out to uh, to the court to watch him plays doubles matches and I thought why am I doing this I have seen this over and over and I, s- I still found myself laughing uh, not as much I have to say one of the most enjoyable uh, experiences or just hilarious surreal experiences in my career so far has been being at Heathrow Airport with Tim Henman we were just by complete coincidence on the same flight and uh, myself and a colleague bumped into him at the airport he just sort of goes about his life in a completely deadpan way whilst people shout come on Tim at him <laughs> From afar, it's. Just, I mean, you could just make the most amazing viral video if if Tim Henman just going about his day while people shout "Come on, Tim!" and just do fist pumps in his face whilst he just has to take it. It's it's amazing.
1: Tim Henman's name is currently on the floor, everybody. After Catherine. Just just misplaced it and dropped it. Uh, but that's Tim that He's going to be at the Royal Albert Hall. Yes, we do work for the Royal Albert Hall tournament. We are biased. I don't mind saying it. But it's a fantastic tournament. And uh, we're very much looking forward to that one as well. We are absolutely chuffed that you were one of the people that downloaded this tennis podcast One of the million downloads we've had over the past three years. We're on to the next million now, Catherine. Uh, Do stay with us. Do subscribe on iTunes. Do review us on iTunes because that helps our iTunes rankings. You know, we were in the top 60 this week, Catherine. That was pretty good, wasn't it?
2: Quite right too. Who are these other 59? I mean, who are those jokers?
1: Absolutely. Catherine Whitaker here on the Tennis Podcast. Brought to you in association with The Telegraph. Do check out uh, their tennis coverage and do Come back and listen to us next week. We'll speak to you soon.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.